This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back and thank you for listening to another bonus episode today with Art Curious. I am happy to share with you an awesome conversation that I had this past summer with Jeannie Marshall, the author of All Things Move, Learning to Look in the Sistine Chapel. I loved this book, which is a deeply personal search for meaning in Michelangelo's frescoes and also an impassioned defense of the role of art in a fractured age. What do we hope to get out of seeing a famous piece of art? Jeannie Marshall asked that question of herself when she started visiting the Sistine Chapel frescoes. She wanted to understand their meaning and context, but in the process, she also found what she didn't know she was looking for. All Things Move, Learning to Look in the Sistine Chapel tells the story of Marshall's relationship with one of our most cherished artworks. Interwoven with the history of its making and the Rome of today, it's an exploration of the past in the present, the street in the museum, and the way a work of art can both terrify and alchemize the soul. All Things Move is a quietly sublime meditation on how our lives can be changed by art if only we learn to look. Jeannie Marshall is a writer who has been living in Italy with her family since 2002. She's a nonfiction author, a journalist, and a former staff writer at the National Post in Toronto, and she contributes articles to Maclean's and The Walrus and has literary nonfiction published in The Common, The Literary Review of Canada, Brick, and Elsewhere. And she joined me a couple months back via Zoom. So without further ado, let's meet Jeannie and get to know art, beauty, and how to look at the world in a new way. Jeannie Marshall, welcome to Art Curious today. Hello, thank you. Thanks, I'm so delighted to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I am thrilled to talk about All Things Move. I think this is a beautiful and inspiring, a very poetic book. So I want to begin just so our listeners who maybe haven't had the chance to pick up their own copy yet, give us a little bit of background. How long have you been living in Rome? I know it's been a long time, but how did you find yourself moving there? Okay. Yes, it has been a long time. It's been about 21 years now. And originally, we, my husband and I had this idea that we would go to Rome for two years because he had an opportunity for a job. And I am always hungering for a change. And nice. we thought, yes, two years in Rome, wouldn't that be great? We would learn Italian. So of course, 21 years later, I'm still learning Italian. It was, it That's was, it know, two years goes by, two years goes by in a flash. And you think, oh, wait, no, we're only just getting started. And his job kept changing and becoming more, going from the sort of tentative contract job to the more kind of permanent job. He works for the United Nations. And and for me, being a freelance writer, it was everything I wanted to be able to just go out and explore this new culture and have an opportunity to write some stories from there and send them back to Canada, to the newspaper I worked for and to some other magazine. So it was wonderful. And it just, yeah, it's just, to me, it's a shock that it's been 21 years, but yes. 
you are actually talking to me from Canada right now. What is it like when you return back to Canada? How is there a culture shock? Does one place feel like home and the other doesn't? Do you feel like you have two homes? I do go through a bit of culture shock. And some of it is, I think, perfectly legitimate because you realize that things change over time. And so our first visits back would be about the familiarity of home and things that just came into focus more that you realize, oh, I forgot how beautiful a January morning can be with the freezing cold and the blue sky and everything. And or that your favorite coffee shop going in and they don't even notice that you actually left or something like that. (laughs) But now after all these years, so much has changed and we've grown older and we now have a son and he's 18. And he's, we're actually here because he's starting to go to the University of Toronto this year. So we came to help him get settled in to his dorm. And that's my old university. So it's been really fun to walk around the campus and remember, you know, what life was like when I was first going there. and What a sanctuary that place was for me as well. Yeah, no, so it's really nice. And I do go through this kind of jet lag euphoria when I first get here and everything is beautiful and wonderful. And I love everybody. And then I have a crash. And (laughs) usually I have a crash on the subway or on the bus or somewhere like that. And then I'm back to normal. So now I'm normal. It's a wonderful place. Rome's a wonderful place. (laughs) Absolutely. Life is good. The world is beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree. And I agree the life, the life sounds amazing and the world is beautiful. And speaking, <laughs> transitioning, see what I'm doing here. I'm transitioning. Yes. Speaking of beauty, one of the things that you write about in this book is that you were living in Rome for a solid chunk of time, about 10 years before you actually visited the Sistine Chapel. Tell us about that. How come you stayed away for so long? Yes, it's funny, because since writing this book, I've had other people come up to me and confess that they've done the same thing, lived in Rome for a long time and not gone to the Sistine Chapel. And we all feel a bit guilty about it. (laughs) I think for me, it felt like every time you go, there's a it's always crowded. And it's a touristic site as well as as anything else. And getting tickets is always a bit of an ordeal. And Mm -hmm. you always have to go through the museum to get to the Sistine Chapel. And it's always, there's just always a lot of people around you. So you have to be ready to go. And I also thought, how do I prepare? The Sistine Chapel is this 500 year old piece of Catholic art. And what, why am I even going to see it? What do I need to see? But at the same time, I think I was letting myself off the hook all the time by using those as excuses and feeling, because I did feel a bit of a tug, like I really should go to see it. I really ought to for many reasons, and I could never really figure them out. And then I would just say, no, it's too much trouble. I'm not going to go. Until finally, we had moved into a new apartment in Rome, and I was unpacking. And there were a few things that started to remind me of my early life in Rome, and how I really originally thought, yes, I must prepare to go to the Sistine Chapel, and realized I'd never actually gone. And my mother had died at that point. And that kind of triggered some sort of feeling that because my mother had a complicated history with Catholicism Mm. and I thought I think I'd like to go now and so then I started making quiet secret visits (laughs) without telling anyone that I was going my son would go to school I'd finish my work and then I'd creep off down to the subway and then go down to the Sistine Chapel have a look around I love this. I love that you did it in this secretive fashion. It's almost like it's reverse (laughs) Catholic guilt. Yes, (laughs) It was strange. And I think I did it secretively partly because I thought I didn't know how to explain what I was doing. Or if my husband would say, why are you suddenly going to the Sistine Chapel now? I didn't really have an answer. 
for that. Yeah. So I just didn't want to answer the question. I'll just go. I'll just go and see what it's like. What's it all about? I understand the hesitancy, at least from the logistical perspective, because you're right, it's an ordeal to get there. It and is. it always feels like such a trial because of all the people and waiting in the lines, everything. So what yes. was it? What was it like when you went? What was your first experience like? I booked a ticket online, which is easier, although there, there are always complications. But at that moment, it was easier to just book a ticket online. So I had my ticket. I went I went to the big front doors and they have two lineups if you have a ticket, one if you don't. So I was able to sail through fairly quickly, figure out the logistics of this giant museum and then just start walking through. But, you know, it was a bit overwhelming. And even though I'd done some reading up and looked at the images online and I had a sense of the sort of context, maybe not a huge sense of the context, but I had read about the panels. I knew what they were supposed to represent images from the Old Testament, especially the central panels being Genesis. So I knew intellectually what they were supposed to be about, but I didn't know why I was supposed to care for one thing. And I wasn't really sure what I was looking at. Was I looking at Michelangelo's style? Was that going to be important? Or was it the whatever the images were meant to mean? So the first few visits, they were just a bit of a blur. You're just mm -hmm. going in, you're being jostled around by people. And the there are these guards that everyone refers to them as the shushers because they're always telling you to be quiet. They're always saying, shush, <laughs> shush. And, and so they even call themselves the shushers. Oh, my but God. I know. <laughs> Love it. But they're trying to manage a crowd. And so they're always trying to herd you towards the exit. So it's not easy. Even once you finally go through everything, get into the room. You know, you do feel this pressure to get out of the room at the same time. And it's hard to stop and actually have a look at what you're looking at. And uh, so the first, I think it was the first two times that I went, I really didn't have much of a sense of anything that I saw. But I felt like I had to give it another try. So I went a third time. When I went the third time, the thing that changed ultimately was that they have some seats that are around the edge of the room. They're very hard to get. But someone stood up and I sat down. And it made all the difference. It just meant that I could concentrate for a few minutes without being bumped around and look up and see just one part of the ceiling. And so what I was looking at was the the three panels that tell the story of Noah and the flood, and mm -hmm. particularly the flood image itself. I was pretty much right underneath it. Even then, it's not a super easy image to see because I was there with someone recently and we managed to get a seat in almost the same spot. Um, it was partly by staring rudely at the people who were sitting there until they finally left. And then <laughs> we ran in and took their seats and we sat there and looked up. And I realized even then it's not that easy to see, but certainly easier for sure. And it just made a difference. It just meant that I could sit for a few minutes, look at the details, think about what I was looking at and try to understand what I was seeing. And I just had a moment of feeling like, oh, wait a minute, there's something here that's bigger than I realized and maybe even has a little bit of a sense of meaning for me, which I didn't expect. I really did not expect that to happen at all. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I'm guessing that feeling or that understanding within yourself, that was what made you want to keep coming back? Or was there other circumstances that made you keep returning over time? Well, I think it really was that feeling. And I didn't know what to make of the feeling either. It seemed a little bit thin in its own way and also momentous in another way. 
And I thought, I'd like to experience that again. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept going back and thinking, I want to try to have that again. If you have a sense, if you have a moment of deja vu or something like that, mm-hmm. and you have that feeling like, I want that again, I want to try to capture it, and you can never quite get it in the same way. But I kept going back and I had other moments that were different, but it was like that was the way in. Suddenly I looked up and I thought, this image isn't like other images that I've seen of the same story of the story of the flood and the deluge, because usually you see an image of the ark and of Noah and of everybody, the animals going on two by two. Whereas in this image that Michelangelo has painted, you actually see the the people who are left behind and who are suffering and are about to drown. Oh, but wow, yeah. And at first I thought, I'm just not very attentive because I didn't really quite catch on to that. But since then, again, other people have said the same thing, that you almost have to see beyond what you expect to see before you see what's actually there. And, Which can and be hard, I, I think. Yeah, it is. It is really hard. Su- surprisingly difficult to see because you go there, you're trying to prepare yourself. And so that creates expectations as, as well. And then you need a moment when you can just actually see what's up there. And it's so complicated. It's just, that's a big thing. I'm looking at one panel and then I was looking around the ceiling and it's a whole room. It's a big, he painted the whole ceiling and then coming down the sides and into the the corners, he's painted more images and then the altar wall. It's a lot to look at. And even then I felt like I want to, I really want to look at this more carefully. I want to see what else he's depicting that I'm not expecting and so then it just became a little hobby almost. <laughs> I love that. I, I know. I don't think I, I didn't originally think about writing about it. I was just trying to figure it out and would make notes for myself. And I have years and years of we're moving house again. And I was going through boxes and I've got endless notebooks of I went to this gallery, went to that gallery, little indecipherable notes that I made that I think are Oh, for me, just for myself, they're just, if I write it down, I might remember it a little bit more. I might think about it a little bit more. So I was doing that at first. And then I decided that I would try to write an essay as a way of helping me to understand what I was looking at. And you, that's what I did. So I started with an essay and then it ended up becoming a book. That was actually my next question for you. And you just mm-hmm. naturally queued it up for me was what, <laughs> when was there this moment that you realized that this was sort of a two-part question. When did you realize that this was A, something that you knew you wanted to write about and B, that you knew that it was then more than that essay, that it was now a book-length project? I think it was after that visit when I got to sit down and look at the deluge that I thought, I think I might like to write an essay, maybe. So the notes were coming in, but I thought I really want to understand this thing. And I wasn't sure that I should write an essay, given that I'm not an art historian. I don't have that kind of background, but I thought just, I just want to understand it from the perspective of a human being, a modern woman sitting here looking at this, this painting, what does it mean? Or this fresco, what does it actually have to say to me? And I thought I can best understand it by writing about it myself. Mm. So some of it was notes just for myself. Some of it was maybe this is going to become an essay. And I write lots of essays that I never do anything with. I think it's just part of the life of being a writer. But yeah, I felt like there's a lot of people here in this room and we're all looking around and trying to figure it out. We don't know how to do it. And there is no how, there is no real way to do it. So yeah. maybe if I wrote about my own process, that would be helpful for other people. So I did, I started that first essay and the first essay is 
not completely, but the first chapter of the book is more or less the first essay, although there was a little bit, there were other things in it. But it's not very personal. It has the first person. I talk about my, you know, my attempts to understand it. And it was more later when I realized that I might have to bring in a little bit more of my own past and my own life and my mother's Catholicism and everything. That's when I thought, okay, then it would have to be a book. And I thought, I'm just going to write it, but I don't know if anyone's ever going to want to read it. (laughs) There's that feeling like, is it too personal? Is it not personal enough? Is it relatable? I don't know. But I felt really compelled to just do that, write it out and try to make, I was, I'm looking at a big piece of art and I think I thought I have to create something that is artful in response to it to try to understand it myself. There's more coming up next right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. You know what, but I think you hit on something that I really resonate with. And I think both as someone who has an art background and also someone you talk about what it's like as a viewer who's not an art historian, who's a woman. I feel that you've done such a wonderful job because I best guess, I would say 99% of the people who get to go to see the Sistine Chapel are not art historians. If they do have a background in art history at all, it's probably minor. You know, many people come in without having any sort of background on how to understand or how to see these works of art. And so I think your book is wonderful because it helps give a little bit of a sensation about how to do that. And so I think that's necessary. And I think in some ways that's even more necessary than someone like me coming in and telling you, here's what it's about. Because (laughs) as, as you've said, there is not one way to look at things and everyone's allowed to have their own experiences. So I think the personal aspect of your book is what makes it to me such an inspiring read is because you come at it from this wonderful human perspective. Oh, thank you for saying that's very nice. But it's I understand what you mean. But we need the person like you to also everyone does need we need the information. There's a lot to understand in this. And a lot of it is about what is actually being the pictures actually are telling you. Uh, You need to know something about the history of the painting, even though in this case, you need to know something about the artist himself, because uh, he's infused into that whole thing that his own sense of his own greatness and then his own fears of his mm-hmm. of perhaps dishonoring his own his god it's all in the painting so you need to know a lot but 
at the same time, you're going to have an experience that isn't intellect completely intellectual at the right. same time. So it's like you need to go and you need to have that there to help you get grounded and find a, a little corner of it that you can hold on to and look at. And then it's like you have a relationship with it. That's the only way I can really describe it. It's like you're, it becomes, once you have all that information, that background, the understanding, then you can start to you can start to relate to it yourself. Sometimes yeah. I feel like, what am I going to do? Do I have to look at every, do I have to do this with every painting now I look at? It's a lot of work, but. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. Extent, yes. <laughs> I was a journalist before. And so some of it is like that journalistic habit you, you research. So you think, I don't understand this. I'm not the expert here. And I'm very used to not being the expert. So you do what you can and find as much as you can and read the art historians and and read what's already known. I'm no, I wasn't trying to, certainly I wasn't capable of doing any original research, but all I was capable of doing was trying to absorb and digest what's known and what's out there. And then what do I, see, see what I can do with that afterwards. And any of us can do that. It's just that, yes, and when you take a big old piece of art like this, there's a lot that's been written about it already. That's true. I actually wanted to know what was your process after you'd had these experiences of visiting a few times? What was your process going into it to learn more about it? Were there particular works or were you just enjoying Googling around to try to find more information? And then my second part is I want to know a little bit, you've mentioned Michelangelo, and I always love having the background to works of art. So who made it? Why? Where? What was your relationship as you started working through this project and writing the book? What became your relationship with the artist himself? And what did that mean to you? I started even just getting some books that were about Renaissance the Renaissance in Italy and trying to understand the context of why did it happen? Even yeah. what was going on? Why did you have all these painters suddenly painting like no one else did? And because you had Leonardo a little bit earlier than you have Raphael, who's younger than Michelangelo, but they're all at the same time. And so what was that all about? What was going on? What were the conditions that created that kind of heady moment when, or heady decades when you could paint like this? But there's a lot to read, but I just took it slowly. I would, we would, wherever I went, I would just drag these great big heavy art books around with me. And then also started reading the Old Testament because I felt like I needed to understand a little bit more of that because that's what is being depicted in the images. So I thought I should try to understand the text a little bit more and then a little bit about biblical scholarship. And then and then just started reading about the history. And that it was when I started reading about the history of that period that I realized that it's it was a moment, it was huge. It was such a big moment because I had not realized when I started looking at the Sistine Chapel, I didn't realize that the ceiling was painted and then the sack of Rome happened. And the sack of Rome, if you live in Rome, you hear about it all the time because it was, the, Rome was sacked many times, but in 1527, it was sacked by, uh, by a mercenary army, but they had a, an element of the kind of new Protestantism coming up. And they were, some of them were followers of Luther. And so they were attacking the sort of basis of Catholicism. So that happened and it was violent and awful. And then Michelangelo painted the Last Judgment. So you realize this big historical event happened in between the these two images that make up both the old, testament and then this very iconic image from the new testament mm. and there's this big moment of history in between 
So it meant that I had to really, I had to do a lot of reading. And coincidentally, I was doing some of it, though, during the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Oh, wow. And so there was actually a lot about that. that you know, there were some new books, new writing going on about him during that time. So that was just a coincidence, but it was a lucky one. So I found that there was a lot of information that I could read and a lot of really engaging and good books that were coming out about that period that also just shed some light on what was going on, what was happening at that time. Because you realize it's not divorced from the time that it was painted. It's really very much about the time that it was painted. So I've got a, I ended up amassing a big library. And also because there aren't a lot of English libraries available in Italy. So I started just every time we came back to Canada, I'd fill my suitcase with books to go back home. And I would use the, the you can order used books online. So I would find books there and ended up creating a good library of reference material. And it, it gave me a lot of comfort because it gave me lots of sources to go to. And also there's constant scholarship going on as well. If you look at the academic sources, JSTOR and places like that, you can look up and realize there's still lots being written about Michelangelo, the Renaissance, all of these periods of all of these artists and historians. There's all, always a lot more that's still being discovered, still that's still alive. Absolutely. I tried to read as much as I could there too. Just having all like reading all that stuff just gave me a sort of sense of comfort and gave me a way to understand what I'm looking at. It gave me the information. I guess that's the thing. Gave me the information. Mm -hmm. And then from there I felt like I could then have my own relationship with the artwork itself and try to respond to it in my own way. But I think your second question was about Michelangelo himself. And he to me is a bit of a mystery even now. I and maybe it's because it's 500 years, it's hard. He also just seemed like he was such a private person. Yeah. And such a, br a brooder as well. And I I always think of him in that way as being grouchy. And, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> I think he had a sense of humor as well, but he was definitely a very serious person. And he was trying, he had ideas of what he wanted to do in art, but he's like any artist of any time having to also he has to get his commission and he has to please whoever has commissioned him to do this piece of art. And he didn't even really want to do the Sistine Chapel because he didn't consider himself a painter. So he kept trying to get out of it. He didn't want to do it, and yeah. but he had to. And in many ways, it's the, I guess the David is his other really recognizable piece, but the Sistine Chapel is the one everyone knows who, ask anyone, ask anyone you can think of. And that's one one thing we know is that Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. That's true. How did your relationship to the Sistine change over the time to, or to these works of art? What does it mean to you now? Is it different than it was when you first started going? Yeah, when I first started going, it was a bit of a puzzle. So it was like, how does this part relate to that part? And what are the parts that go together? And so I started to realize that he divided it into pieces. So the central panels show you the story of Genesis. And then there are images in the four pendentives, they're called. There's spandrels and pendentives, and sometimes the names are used interchangeably. But anyway, they're like corner paintings. And so what are those about? There's David and Goliath in one. There's Judas cutting the head off Holofernes in another. And so I started to realize there are just these little stories, and they all tell a story about the Old Testament. But they also tell this story of mystery because he's included 
pagan images like the the sibyls oh yes so it included the christian prophets the old testament prophets but also the pagan prophets who are the sibyls and they're the same size so they have an almost have an equality in the ways painted them and who knows why he mm -hmm. did but sibyls were popular subjects for art in the renaissance and i just found that really interesting because to me they were like the distant unknown past and that they were always they're always represented as have as telling the future but also there's a kind of sense of confusion and mystery about what their prophecies are all about so they that to me kept that feeling kept coming back to me it's this isn't a settled story he's telling the story as we what we know but it's an interpretation and you have this sense that there is still this mysterious origins of the world and the origins of humanity and that felt like that was all a part of the story and that was what made it more interesting to me was that it didn't feel like didn't feel like it was didactic you didn't feel like this is part of your Sunday school instruction <laughs> to understand what the Bible is telling you and this is what it's telling you it's more like you get the sense of we have no idea really this is but these images are here and come from these stories and at that time that would have been a sense of this is our shared history in this place in this part of the world and so people would have have understood the images probably better than we our contemporaries do now when we go to see them yeah so I found that was part of the pleasure was in trying to unravel the big story and realize that it's it still contains a lot of mystery in that story and that it may not be I'm not a Christian myself but certainly sympathetic to people who are to other religions as well but I found it I grew up certainly in a Catholic and Christian environment so these stories also resonate as part of my own personal past too and I felt like suddenly oh now I understand a few things like from my grandmother or from her contemporaries as well that they were a little bit closer to it than we are yeah. and that also just surprised me that there could be this sense that you have also a little bit of a personal history that's entwined that the, those stories that obsessed Michelangelo say and his contemporaries were also the stories that affected and uh, obsessed my grandmother a French Canadian who came to Canada a few centuries ago her family came to Canada a few centuries ago and you think how is that possible but there it is it's all these stories are all swirling around and stirred up in all of our lives and even if we're not christians we know the stories and there are the other religions that you know that are part of the the same books and so you just start to feel like ah there's all these connections and there it just spreads out and there's tentacles everywhere and i love that feeling because we feel so divided so much of the time now and yeah how do we talk to each other and this to me seems like finding all these little pieces that relate to so many of us oh. culturally if not religiously and that that to me was a fascinating thing to think ah someone else might also feel or may not be a religious person but might respond to some of these images the way that I'm responding to them or have that kind of memory that someone in your past used to like my mother would carry these little devotional pictures of Mary in her mm. purse and you think uh, there are other people who had that experience too of not being particularly religious but realizing that their grandmother had a cross on the wall or had certain images catholic reproductions of certain paintings reproductions from the sistine chapel you might have had them in your house or 
had a book around like it's just here and there and even here in the new world it's here with us it's still here so I I loved that sort of sense that this history still percolates through not in any kind of instructional or moral way it's just there the images are there and we see them and respond to them in some way and they may have very different meanings now than they did when they were painted but we see them and they have a kind of personal response I think that's that's amazing I do too. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think it's wonderful to know that people, I feel I've mentioned this so many times on my podcast in the past, but I feel like people come into art a lot of times feeling like there's only one way to understand it or on one way to experience it. And so I love that this it's helping that people have the sense that there is a personalization, this personal experience that you can have and whatever your response is, that is okay. That is a response for you. And it's perfectly legitimate. Before yeah, even we... if there's no response, you know, exactly. you can stand there and go, well, I don't know, does nothing for me. And then maybe in the middle of the night, it will, you yes. don't have to, you don't, and not, you don't have to respond to everything. None of us, we, none of us would respond to everything, but that's liberating to know that. I think that's a wonderful way to put it. It is liberating. One last question I have for you is, do you have advice on people who are going to the Sistine Chapel for the first time? What would you tell them about how to experience this work if you could, or do you have any advice that you would be able to share? I think, yeah, it's hard. I probably have no real good advice except (laughs) to maybe just try to read a little bit about it ahead of time, just so you have a sense of how it's structured, because that helps a bit. And then if you look at some images on online or in a book, you can say, I'm going to find that one. I'm going to find, I'm going to find Jonah, you know, Mm. or I'm going to find the Libyan Sybil. And that gives you a way to anchor yourself because then you think, okay, there's that one. And then in relation to that image, there is a prophet down here. So which prophet is that? And then you figure it out. And it's part of a way into the story, into looking at it, because otherwise it can look like a swirl of color. And it's, now it is colored because of course it was cleaned what 20 years ago or so and are more than that now but it's it can be it just can look like a big tangled confusion of images up there otherwise so if you find something that you can just look at that one image and you know what that one image means you've seen something at least and Mm -hmm. if you have time to go back more than once that can also pay off as well and definitely, if you can just get a seat <laughs> by the side <laughs> of the wall, just keep your eye on that. Just it, it helps because then you stop getting pushed out of the room. And that also makes a big difference. Like you do see people who will try to sit on the floor. And I understand completely why they do it, because they just want to stop and look. And but the shushers make you get up because you're in danger of being trampled by sitting on the floor. <laughs> right. So there are people who have told me about getting special access and being able to lie down on the floor. And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. I think that would be wow. kind of great. Although I'm, I'm not sure that I would get anything more out of it, but just the idea of it would be like a wonderful thing to do. Absolutely. So, but, I'm so curious. <laughs> most of us, yeah, most of us are not going to have that experience we're going to be in there with a whole bunch of other people and I like being in there with other people because I feel like we're all in here none of us know what we're doing in our lives if we were honest Mm -hmm. and none of us know what we're doing in this room either and we're just trying to look at this and get something out of it so I find that kind of comforting to look around and realize we're all confused aren't we (laughs) yes oh my gosh absolutely I love that so much (laughs) Jeannie Marshall, what is next for you? What is going on and where can people find you and your book? Oh, okay. I'm going to 
go in the fall in October to the Vancouver Writers Festival. Oh, nice. And and there's also a literary festival in Edmonton as well. So that's very nice for me because I don't get to travel to that part of Canada very often. And in November, there will be a Toronto Public Library event that I get to go to as well and do a presentation there. So that will be lovely. That will be fun. And I'll also be in Rome and in Florence as well, doing a few events coming up. But the book is in most bookstores, I believe, certainly available online as well. And I just want to get back to writing some more. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard at this very moment just because there's so much going on in my life. But I really miss sitting down and thinking about the artwork and writing something else. And I haven't really decided exactly yet what I'm going to do next. But I have to write my way through things sometimes to figure out what I'm thinking. I completely understand and relate to that. So I yes, that. I'm sure you can. <laughs> Jeannie, thank you so much for joining me today on Art Curious. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a, just wonderful for me. Thank you. Thank you for listening in today to this interview with Jeannie Marshall. As I've mentioned in my past couple of episodes, I've got a couple more interviews coming your way over these months this fall, and then we'll be heading into the holiday season with a very special episode. So stay subscribed. I will see you again here soon. Stay curious.